Merry Christmas, everybody. So good to see you and uh, those of you who are at home. We're missing your presence here. You know, it's one of these days of the year where you just don't know who's going to be able to come to church and who's busy, who's not. I'm so glad that you're here and that you've made it a priority to do so. Um, I'm really excited about where we're going today in this message as we finish up our series called DNA and talking about some different things that have really characterized us as a church for the better part of 10 years. It's actually been nine years, but almost 10 years. And what we've been talking about is, is these four kind of joining ideas, belong, become, beyond, begin. And we're going to talk about begin and what that means today. But just in honor of it being Camo Sunday, I wanted to bring a tree up on stage. Um, and you can't even see me, can you? It's like I'm all camoed behind this. Hopefully you got some camo cake that Richard made or maybe some camo cupcakes. I don't, I don't know. I didn't have any of those things, but hopefully you did. If not, maybe there's some left. Um, don't get up in the middle of the service. I would consider that rude, so don't do that unless you need the sugar, and then I'll just give you a pass and go get you some. Anyway, so glad that you are here, and this being Camo Sunday, this is one of the things that we do every year, not my idea. A lot of the things that we do at the church are my idea. Okay, they are. This is not my idea. This has never been my idea. This is Richard's idea. So, Richard, we love you, and you're also to blame. So, just so you know, it all goes towards uh, Richard, but it's all in good fun and something that we have a lot of fun in doing. We have no ghillie suits in the room, so that's really good. That's a, a separation, uh, something different from the last couple of years because we've had some ghillie suits. Actually, the reason why I brought this up on stage is not because it's Camo Sunday, so I kind of fibbed to you a minute ago. The reason why I brought this on stage is because it's to really illustrate this point about beginning again. What's really been odd to me, and I don't even know why that I've even let this exist, this pot has been sitting on our deck or right off of our deck for years. And, and it's just been sitting there, and it's, we talk about this every once in a while. We don't have a green thumb at our house. We have... We kill things. We don't let things like grow. So everything that is green in our house is plastic. It's not, we don't have to do anything to it. It just, you just dust it and it's just, it stays there, of course. But so I've let this thing grow outside of our house for years now. And one of the things that I was thinking about in particular with this message is think about this. This is a pine tree. This is a pine tree. And think about wherever, however it was created and how, whatever landed in it here and how it was pollinated and everything that happened for this pine tree to begin to grow in this pot. Now we know it's going to outgrow this pot if we just let it go, right? We know this. But this is such a clear example from nature of what we talk about spiritually, about beginning again. There's this element of beginning again that's everywhere, it's everywhere in our world. It's all around nature. Every time you see a new tree grow where you didn't plant it, this somebody else, or if you did plant it, it's this picture of beginning again. So while we're going to talk in large part about the spiritual realities of beginning again, I want you to have an awareness that it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's even, we're, we're at the stage now, it's really cool in our parenting, we're at the stage now where our kids listen to the music that we listened to when we were kids. Anybody else in that boat? Like, it's exciting. Anybody else kind of nervous because they don't want you to find some of the music that you listened to when you were a kid? And you're like, please, now you actually know what the words are, and you're like, no, 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 don't listen to that. That's a bad choice, right? Anybody like that? Like, we're in that, we're in that boat, too. It's like, eh, stay away from that, but that one's, that was the 80s. That was a good song, so that was good. It's this little picture of beginning again. 
It's, that's what this is. It's beginning again. It's something fresh that was in us. And now you start to see it kind of take root and birth into a new generation. It's this idea of beginning again. Okay, ladies in your jeans, it's the same thing, right? Right now, I don't know what jeans are popular, or like if leggings or jeans, I don't know. We've talked about this. I have challenges when it comes to this. I don't know what this is. But like if you look around, there's like, there's like bell bottoms, which is clearly from the 70s, right? 60s and 70s, still popular today. Then you have mom jeans, which are brought back again, like beginning again. I don't know why. That was popular in the 80s, right? And now I don't even know what, what the thing, we're on skinny jeans in 10 years. Skinny jeans are going to be back. I'm just letting you know right now. We see this all over right now. Mullets are in again. Who agrees that mullets should have died a long time ago? Like, right? Thank you. That's the one thing we do agree upon. It's the achy, breaky, bad, mistakey, right? So it's like, thank you. Billy Ray Cyrus, it should have like went away with your career. Anyway, I don't know what, where I was going with that. I, I'm sure he has a career, and he's probably just sitting at home counting money right now. I don't know. But, but I go through all of this just to, again, illustrate that this idea of beginning again is all over the place. I, I learned this relationally in a really weird way. Where I grew up in, in the small town that I grew up in, no one ever seemed to move. Everybody, it just seemed like the same people lived on each corner through the, the span of all my upbringing, and it was the same people. And the only way they moved is that they passed away. And that's literally, that was the only way they moved. And that was such a, that was normal for me. But then whenever in 1987, when my stepfather went back into the Navy, it's a long story, but he, when he went back into the Navy in 1987, I went to spend the summer with my mother and stepfather in Jacksonville, Florida, at the Navy base. And they lived in this cul-de-sac. Everybody knows what a cul-de-sac is, right? It's just a bunch of houses around a circle, kind of off, you know, off the main road. And everybody lived in the cul-de-sac. But what was so weird is, it being a Navy base, there was always people coming and going. This people would be in there for a season, maybe a year, two years, three years. And then they would move out. It was, it was base housing, so people would just come, kind of come and go. And everybody would, they would come in and they would plant roots for a season and then they would leave. And to me, that was such a weird thing because my upbringing was once you were, once you lived in the neighborhood, you stayed in the neighborhood. And that's just the way it was. And you just kind of settled there and that was home and these were your people. It really challenged the way that, that I started to think about things relationally because I would watch people come in in a season and then people, I know that they would leave in a season, and you were only there for a certain amount of years. But what I've come to understand is even within the local church, that's very common. There are some people who, who come into a local church, and they stay there for the rest of their life. And there are also some people who come in for a season, and sometimes it's a long season, sometimes it's a short season. And yet sometimes we don't know how long the season is. One thing I do know is there was something beautiful about the cul-de-sac, and I think it's a picture of the local church today. You see, we all live in a spiritual cul-de-sac, so to speak. And that we call the local church. We all live in a, in a spiritual cul-de-sac. We all have this thing in common that we gather around. And if we're in Christ, then we're, we're gathered and we're held together by Christ. The Holy Spirit of God joining us all, making us family. So where we're trying to figure out what that looks like is we're living in a cul-de-sac and some of us like to cut our grass and some of us don't like to cut our grass. Of course, I'm using this as a metaphor, saying sometimes we have disagreements. 
Sometimes we just don't understand why people do certain things. Sometimes we just don't understand why God does what God does and what we have to come to terms with. We all have to figure this out together because we're a family. And because we all live in this spiritual cul-de-sac, that we have this connection to one another, whether it's for a season or whether it's for earthly, for our lifetime, but we all have this thing in common, and it's God. But that doesn't mean that we are immune to pain. As a matter of fact, I invite you to go into Acts 8, and we're going to see this, this moment in the church's history, that though this was a time of rejoicing where they were coming together and people were coming to, to faith in Christ. And there was excitement. But even with that excitement, there was still pain. As a matter of fact, one of the things that, that brought a pain point in the early churches is people are coming into the church and people are being evangelized and people are being baptized and, and all of this, this energy and vibrancy is happening in the church. There was also a crisis in the church because there was this group of widows who weren't being who they had needs that were not being met. And it brought division within the church, and yet the church didn't, didn't quabble about how they were going to meet the need. They just quickly decided how they were going to meet the need. So they, they created this new position in the church called the deacon that didn't exist before. And so seven men were chosen to help meet this need, the need of these, these widows who were hungry and they needed to be cared for. They didn't have anyone outside of their family to care for them. So it was the church's responsibility. It was the church's privilege. So now the, the creation of this position is, is brought about and there were seven deacons. One of these deacons, we see that his life is cut short. He is so on fire for God. He's an, a man by the name of Stephen. One of the prize seven, but we see that he has such a testimony and he has such a fervor for the Lord that he can't help but talk about Jesus. So as he is just fired up and talking about Jesus, of course, here's where the pain comes into the early church too because just because you're excited about your faith doesn't mean that everybody else outside of your circle is going to be excited about your faith. Anybody say amen to that? And that's what happens with Stephen. But instead of backing down, Stephen doesn't back down at all. Just to get a, a running head start into our main passage that we're going to begin in verse 1 of chapter 8. I want us to begin in Acts seven fifty four. As Stephen is preaching, he's given this testimony. This is, his, this is the response to him. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Verse 57. At this they covered their ears and yelled at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragging him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. He had died. So the response to his excitement and vibrancy in the faith and his, his evangelism 
is opposition ultimately to a crowd that that he's preaching loudly for all to hear. And at the same time, they just plug their ears not to hear what it is that Stephen has to offer. And contrary to that, they decide that they're just going to stone him and kill kill him publicly for the first martyr of the early church. So how would the church respond? Such pain. I want you to know this. I don't know where you are in in your life right now, what you're feeling right now. But I want you to know this, that though there are seasons and times where we go through great pain, I want you to know that God has a greater purpose. Although we may go through emotional pain or physical pain or even spiritual, what we would classify as spiritual pain, God has a greater purpose. Let's see God's greater purpose in verse 1, chapter 8. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house, He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. So how did the church respond? You see this great pain point that one of their brothers in Christ, one of the the early seven leaders in the church now, those who, who were appointed by the people to be a deacon, and now he dies publicly simply because of his faith and excitement of his faith in telling other people about that. Again, Great pain, greater purpose, back into verse 1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Here, we're we're leaning towards a greater purpose here. In, In that moment, the church is scattering while the apostles are staying in Jerusalem. Now, you could look at this and just say, well, why is it, why wouldn't the apostles also leave? I don't think that we should look upon the apostles and kind of scorn them to think, well, you're the apostles, you're the sent out ones. Why did you stay there while everybody else left? I think instead we should respond and say with a little bit of curiosity and even see their courage to say, no, no, they stayed as the early church. But God had a purpose for them staying in Jerusalem. But the farther we read into this passage, we also start to see that God had a purpose for the pain And that purpose was even greater than what was imagined. Because it says that while the apostles stayed, the people did something else. The apostles stayed, but yet while this persecution broke out, it says all except the apostles were scattered. So then this moment in time of God's redemptive history, though this painful time in the church's history, in a time of celebration, newly appointed leadership, now this crisis point comes, and the apostles stay in Jerusalem, but everybody else scatters. But when they scatter, they bring the ability for the church to begin again with someone else. You see, every change that is brought into church life is an opportunity to begin again. Every change that is brought into church life is an opportunity to begin again. 
So picture, if you will, the apostles stay in Jerusalem. The rest of the believers, they're scattered. And sure, it may look as if they're just running for their life, but what they're doing is they're running for their life, but they're bringing the gospel with them. They're bringing the gospel seed with them. So everywhere they go, they're creating another little spiritual cul-de-sac. So now instead of all of them being clustered up in one gigantic holy huddle in Jerusalem. Now they're scattered, and now they have the opportunity of creating these little local churches in the places where they go because they're bringing the seed of the gospel with them. And every time that a follower of Jesus scatters for whatever reason, they bring the gospel seed with them, and that is, it is changed, but it's an opportunity for the church to begin again. That's what we see here. You see, you can't have this this movement of the early church. You can't have the beauty of, of what we see in the early church if there was not this pain point of persecution. And although nobody wants to sit and celebrate persecution, what we can do is we can celebrate their faithfulness. And the fact that for them... This, this burden, this persecution is coming towards them. But they, like a good sailor, doesn't run away from the storm. A good sailor goes into the storm. And I want you to know this, church. You, don't, you ought not to run away from the storms of life. You need to turn your life towards the storms and go into the storms of life because that's where Jesus is. That's where Jesus is. If you turn away from the storms of life in a way to avoid the storms of life, you're going to, you're going to miss the greater purpose that God had when he brought about the storm in the first place. You see, continuing the spiritual cul-de-sac idea, The apostles stayed while everybody else scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. It's in these moments of great change or pain or circumstance that's outside of our control that I think the Christians ultimately have a decision to make. We must decide to begin together and also resist trying to build alone. And if I could lean into this just for a moment, I haven't seen Christians model this really well in my time in ministry. Instead, I see a lot of Christians who go through times of suffering or pain, whether it's pain of their own doing or it's emotional pain or spiritual pain or however it is that we would classify this. In many ways, instead of leaning into church community, I've seen a lot of Christians avoid church community and avoid the very place of healing that God has provided for them. So again, I, I, would be, I would be very foolish to think that I would know what's going on in all of your lives or what will go on in your lives. But one thing I do know is God has provided, whether you're young or you're old, God has provided this, the, this beautiful location. It's called the local church, a spiritual cul-de-sac, if you will, where you can come in for a lifetime or maybe you'll be there for a season. But this is the place that you need to be because 
in these, these moments of great change or, or even pain, you have to begin together and resist trying to build alone. When the church was scattered, this was an opportunity for the church to grow. This wasn't this, this group of people who were running away from issues. You may look at that if you miss the evangelistic side of it. But I think it's, it's important, too, to go back into this passage because there's this gentleman by the name of Saul that's mentioned a couple times. Of course, if you've read Acts and just continued one chapter later, you know the story of Saul who becomes who? Paul. So if you're familiar with that storyline, you know that what happens to him. But Saul, is, he's an important figure in the New Testament. He was born in modern day, it was Tarsus, but it's modern day Turkey. He was known as a Hebrew of the Hebrews, the son of a Pharisee. He was a royal citizen, excuse me, a Roman citizen. He was educated by one of the premier Jewish rabbis. He was a devoted Pharisee himself. If you measured his life by the law, he would look like he had, all, he had it all figured out. Of course, he didn't have it all figured out. He, was very promising. he had a very promising future as a young Pharisee, and, and his future would have been that he would have been probably the mo- one of the most wise sages around Jerusalem and Judea. But I couldn't help but think of the fact that something was missing in his life that he couldn't see. I don't know if you're, if you're familiar with the old Twilight Zone TV shows. Remember that from the 80s? Some of you are, older, some of you are grinning, you're shaking your head, you get it. Um, they were kind of weird, right? I was a kid watching those things, and I shouldn't have been watching those things. Like, all right, go to sleep now. Okay, you know, and you're scared to death when you go to sleep. But there's one particular mover, one, one particular show that I remember, and it was the... It was the gorilla at 30,000 feet. You remember that one? It's like this, this guy is on a plane. I think he's, he's there with his wife, and he's on a plane, and, and he starts going crazy because he's looking out the window of the plane, and he starts to see this ape on the wing of the plane, and, and he's kind of like visualizing this thing, and this gorilla is like pulling up the wires of this plane. Some of you remember this, and he's pulling up the wires of the plane, and then he goes over the engine, and he rips off the cowling to the engine, and he's like tearing into the engine, and he sees the engine on fire. Problem is, he's the only one who can see it. So then he's starting to like unravel and he's hitting the call button, call button, call button. The stewardess comes over and then she looks out the window and she's like, can I get you a refreshment? Like, cause she sees him just unraveling like something's going wrong. He sees something that nobody else sees. You see, when in life of Saul, it's the opposite. Everybody else sees his issue, but he doesn't see it. He was spiritually blind to the fact that when he's running down Christians, and he's standing, basically, that Stephen is essentially dying at his feet. That he's giving approval. He, to many people, they would have looked at him to think, man, you have it all figured out. But he had this one glaring blind spot. Though he knew a lot of information and though he had a lot of education, he himself would have, he himself would have thought, man, I have it all figured out. But the one glaring issue is, a lack of love for people. A lack of love for people. 
So while the guy on the plane, he's starting to unravel because he starts to see this thing that nobody, that nobody else sees. And yet, spiritually, I think if we're to be honest, we flip that around. And so many times we have issues that we simply can't see, but everybody else around us does see. All the more reason why we need to be in a local church and connected to a local church. Not just occasionally dropping in on the live stream or you know, on, a YouTube, on our YouTube channel or on Facebook or occasionally attending, but we need to be in, connected in groups, serving, engaged, a part of, in tune with other people speaking into us because they help us see something about ourselves that we simply can't see our own self. Let's continue our reading, verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ or the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he had said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Again, every change that is brought into a local church life is an opportunity to begin again. Here we see another example of this. We see Philip is one of those who were scattered. He himself was a deacon. He also was an evangelist. He goes down to a city in Samaria. I could really go deeply into the Samaritan people and how they were the enemies of the Jews. And it was because of the life and ministry of Jesus that then would give this, they would give Philip the, 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 the inkling, the idea, the reality, the spiritual reality that they are people in need of the gospel, that they're not enemies of the faith. Maybe they're enemies of the Jews, but they're not enemies of God's people. Because ultimately, no one is. No individual person. But it says that Philip went down to the city in Samaria and he proclaimed that Christ there. When the crowds heard... Philip, and they saw the miraculous signs that he did. They all paid close attention to what he had said. They wanted what he had to offer. That he not only brought the boldness of the word, but he also brought the boldness and God gave him miraculous abilities. So then you have the ability that that God distributed through Philip to to heal through the Spirit of God, but also that's clarified with, with the message of the gospel. See, there's something that happens here that for us, just in just seeing the Spirit of God work amongst a local church, there's something that's so inviting, so intriguing to other people outside the faith. When you start to see the Spirit of God move and work in an individual's life, Because the Spirit's work cannot be replicated outside of the Spirit. That's why. That's why it's so intriguing. When you start to see an individual lean into, and you start to see the fruit of the Spirit to be revealed in someone's life, knowing that they can't produce it themselves, but that God produces what He calls love, and He produces joy, and peace, and patience, and self-control, and gentleness, and faithfulness that God produces these things. It's not the individual's effort. 
It's simply the individual's willingness to accept that they can't produce it amongst themselves. So the only thing they can do is cry out to God, admit their own failure and inability, and God then by His grace empowers them. When that individual gets on fire for the gospel message, well, let's, let's see the type of thing that happens. Verse 8, what was the response in the city? So there was great, what's the next word? Joy in that city. There was great joy in that city. Philip wouldn't have come to town if the persecution didn't happen. Consider it. There wouldn't be joy in that town if Philip didn't use this as an opportunity to begin again with another group of people to create another little spiritual cul-de-sac. Just consider this. There would not have been great joy in that city unless, of course, Philip was obedient to God in sharing the gospel message verbally and also displaying God's power spiritually. But because these things happened, there was great joy in the city. Because this is what happens when the people of God are sent out. This is what happens when the people of God decide that they, that everywhere that they go, that they bring a gospel seed with them. This is that opportunity. That everywhere that the people of God go and they bring the gospel seed, the gospel message with them, the verbal message about who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And then that you match that with this, the true spiritual life, the abundant life, the fully integrated, spirit-filled life. And you match those two things together. I believe when we do that, we start to see the reality of what God wants us to do. Not only do we begin again, I think there, that could be said of our city too, that there would be joy in our city. But let me introduce this idea quickly. That's all great, and that's all true. But let, let me, I'm not trying to be negative, but I want to I pastor you a little bit in this next couple of minutes. All of us, like in hearing that, those of you who have the Spirit of God, you're probably, your spirit's quickened to that. You're like, you start to see and you get hopeful and you see this opportunity and you should have. I did. But some of us, instead of acknowledging the fact that we live in a spiritual cul-de-sac, instead some of us are living in witness protection. So instead of being seen and being known, Instead, what we consider it is, we just, we're going to just live in a place like the witness protection program is just, okay, for whatever reason, you need to be protect. you feel like you need to protect yourself from somebody else, 
So the witness protection plan is a perfect thing for you because you can just kind of be in one space and you can be transplanted into another space and yet you can live under the radar. You can, you can assume a different name. You cannot verbalize your past. You can just cut off your past. You can just shut everybody else out of your life and you can just live in your own little bubble right inside that spiritual cul-de-sac and where you were never known. And might I say, some of us are doing that. Where people really don't know you because you don't want them to know you. Or you don't know other people because you simply just don't want to know other people. If we're going to be a church that is, is one that brings joy into our city, we also have to be people who live in joy to lean into what it is that God has for us and not to hide from our past or not to live in our past, but to be honest about that, that pain of the past, trusting that God has a greater purpose for the future. Not like in a witness protection kind of way where you just erase your past as if it didn't happen. God wants to use that to bring glory to him and to bring good into the world. And that's not by us living in a way where we ignore the realities of life, but instead of bringing the realities of life within a community and being obedient to what it is that God has for us. Again, we live in a spiritual cul-de-sac. It's called a local church. Some of us have be here for a lifetime. Some will be here for a season. Some of those seasons are longer than others. But one thing I know is that this should be true. If we do what we're supposed to do, we should be people that God uses to bring great joy to other people. That I know to be true. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We're so grateful that, that you loved us first. Also grateful, God, that we have examples like Stephen in the Scripture and Philip in the Scripture who are obedient. It brings a message of hope. It brings a message of purpose. And God, I thank you that, that you and only you have such a way of taking into account the things that have happened in our past and not to whitewash them and just to ignore the realities of them. And not to ignore pain in our life or pretend that it doesn't exist. But instead, what you invite us into is though we experience pain, but for us to experience a greater purpose in that pain as a local church. We thank you, Jesus, again, for loving us first. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for salvation. We thank you that, that we don't have to hide anymore. We also thank you that, that and praise you, Jesus, that we know that there's a, a hopeful expectation. There is going to be a day where there's 
no more pain and there's no tears and there's no grief and there's no mourning. There's only celebratory love in heaven as we live in your presence completely unashamed, completely undistracted, living in your glory together. Amen. Amen.